that the state in which we find the world right now is an abnormal state. We tend to forget that. Even as believers go out and get into the daily routine, and even we can be prone to wander or forget. And we need to be brought up short and remember that the world really is in a state of tension, and I'm not talking about world tension in the political sense. We are living in a condition that is the very upside-down state of what God intended it to be. In fact, since the fall, we have managed, uh, with Satan's backing, to create a situation where God has basically been excluded from his own creation. And that's not right. It's upside down. We, his creatures, uh, are certainly looked upon with uh, unbelief and horror and amazement by the angels as the unique beings who are getting away with excluding God from our lives and as a world system. But that situation is going to change, and I believe very soon. And the Lord Jesus Christ will set this planet to rights. And it will be turned right side up again. And that's what we've been looking at. And we as believers should remember that and be careful not to uh, be caught up in the world system. But rather be looking heavenward. Awaiting our Savior. And looking forward to the time when he will take his rightful place. And the world will be set to rights. And Paul, in Romans 8, describes the situation in literally giving life to creation and describing this, this uh, groaning, this yearning that creation itself is experiencing, longing for that day when things will be right again. <laughs> and it's very graphic language here in uh, chapter 8, verse 18. Paul is writing... First of all, about uh, believers and sufferings in this life. But then he transitions into this broader subject. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as he thinks of the glory that we shall have when we are glorified by the Lord, he then says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And if you'd like to do... Uh, Word studies in the original, here's the place for it. Almost every word here is straining, uh, yearning, groaning. The earnest expectation, those are strong words of the creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, when we shall return with the Lord and enter into his millennial reign. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You see the picture there of creation just longing for that day to come. And we should be like that, you know, in ourselves. Doesn't mean we don't go to work, go to school, have friends, get married, uh, have twins, you know. But these things are not our focus, like the rest of the people in the world. We need to remember that. Remember that phrase throughout the book of Revelation, what God uses to describe people who resist his coming. They are called, uh, in the English translation, those who dwell on the earth. Oh, no, that phrase. 
and it's very graphic in the original. It's simply earth dwellers. And it's those whose end, beginning and end is right here on this planet and no further, who want nothing to do with God. And we saw last week uh, the judgment of Babylon the Great, and we saw really that it is God judging this world system which has been set up by men. We saw a beginning, remember, in Genesis. Civilization is, is another good word for it. It's this world system that is intended to keep people happy without God. You think it's worked? You better believe it. It's going strong. It's got six billion people, roughly, inoculated, asleep, deadened to the things of God. It works, works well. It has its own ruler, too, and it's Satan himself. And among the judgments that the Lord will pour out on the earth in the last time, He will have a special judgment for this system, beginning at the middle of the tribulation, the beginning of the great tribulation, on the great religious system, where they're moving there right now toward this one world religion. I'll tell you, when all the believers are gone in the rapture, think about it. There's not going to be one person on this earth who knows Jesus Christ. Think about that. Anything that would hold back world unity and religion is gone. Plus, God is going to remove the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit at that time. And so it's going to be a matter of three and a half years uh, where the world's going to be one in religion. And apparently centered in a city. It's called Babylon. We don't know exactly what the city is. As I said, some think it's Rome, others think it's uh, Babylon, others think it's someplace else. We don't know. But the point is, it will be centered in some place, and we saw that that world religion is going to be brought down, not directly by God himself, but he's going to use Antichrist and his followers. Remember, we saw that in chapter 17. Remember that? Yes? Yeah? And it's going to be replaced. See, he has a, he's going to have a motive for destroying the world religion at that point. He is going to replace it with a new religion. Worship of himself. Another will be tolerated. And you will be given the option at that point to either receive his mark and worship him or die. It's that simple. And then, finally, praise God, we're getting near the end here. At the end of the Great Tribulation, the Lord is going to judge the remnant of that world system, the, the great commercial center. We don't know where it'll be again, but he's, he's categorized as a city, and he's going to judge it with a great earthquake that's worldwide, and in particular, he's going to level the city and everything in it just before the uh, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, let's turn to Revelation now, chapter 19. These last several bowls are really preparing the way for the Lord Jesus to personally return and to personally rule over the earth. The seventh bowl, of course, was a great earthquake. It leveled the world system. And if you think the uh, devastation of the World Trade Center affected the world economy, this is going to blow it apart. It's going to be gone. You see, God is, is dismantling this world system that's one of the things he's going to do. And there's going to be nothing left. Nowhere for people to turn. And so, you would think, well, maybe they'll turn to the Lord. No, in fact, they're going to come together and as one last great act of defiance, 
Think about this. They are going to literally try to stop the Lord Jesus Christ from coming and ruling on the earth. That's how far men's hearts will go. We already saw it in the bowls. Remember, three times in response to the judgments of God, what do they do? They blasphemed God. Can you imagine that? Going through these things and shaking your fist at heaven and cursing God for what he's doing? So, Revelation 19, uh, we already read verses 1 through 6. We'll just review them to get the context here this week. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I can't do these verses justice up here. Uh, I wish we could hear them. I wish we could have a tape recording. But I tell you, there's, there's going to be joy breaking out in heaven as it nears the time when finally, after who knows how many thousands of years, God is going to put this planet to rights and Jesus Christ is finally going to reign. Uh, they're anticipating it here. And uh, as I said, one of the fun things to do when you study Scripture is to look for repetition. And there's a word here that's actually used four times and it's nowhere else in the New Testament. It's the word, Alleluia. Now, you know the word, you're familiar with it, and you think it'd be everywhere, but it's nowhere else in the New Testament but here. It's really a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, Hallelujah, which, if you have a newer translation, you can look in your concordance, and you're not going to find it in your Bible because it's been translated as praise the Lord, which is basically it. It's praise ye Yahweh. That's literally what it is, Hallelujah. Great, great phrase, huh? So why can I really praise the Lord? That's what it's saying. Hallelujah. Now, before the Lord Jesus, uh, the description of the Lord Jesus' return is described, there's one more incident here. It's called the Mary Supper of the Lamb, verses 7 through 10. They say, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, the bride here, of course, is the church. It's, uh, the church, as we know, is called, it's a mystery in the Old Testament. It's an insertion in the uh, economy of God. Prophetically, remember the 69 weeks, and then the last week, and in between is the church age, where the Lord Jesus, after having paid the penalty on the cross and risen from the dead, he is now calling out, right now we're living in the church age, Jews and Gentiles to himself. Anyone saved in this age is in the church, the bride of Christ. 
And uh, it's beautifully described in Ephesians chapter 5, how he purchased for himself the church. And there's really a four-step process in the marriage, if you will, of the church with Christ. The first is the betrothing or the engagement, similar to what we have, uh, which is described in Ephesians 5. And then in uh, John 14, he says those wonderful words. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. There's the second step. After prepare, He's going to prepare a place. That's step number two. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great? The Lord Jesus Christ, personally preparing a place for us, his bride. And then, as I said, the third step, he, then, he will come. After the place is ready, he will come and take his bride to himself. Many places, John 14, he says that. Certainly, 1 Thessalonians 4, describing the rapture. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, is described. And then the next step, uh, often, it's interesting because we have to be careful when we think of marriage celebrations. You know, we always think of a Western American wedding. Well, they differ throughout cultures, but they tend to have a very similar ingredients, and there tends to be some sort of celebration. And, uh, you know, we might have what we call a reception. Here it's a supper after the uh, bride and the bridegroom uh, have been joined. And that's what he's talking about here, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the celebration, okay? The wedding celebration, I guess, you know, the reception afterwards. And uh, it's by invitation only. For, of course, the bride, uh, composed of individuals, you know, anyone here who knows Jesus Christ, will be there. You don't have to worry, you know, where is it or, or how do I get there? You'll be there. But then there are others who will be invited, onlookers, certainly the heavenly host, no doubt. Um, uh, saints that have been martyred uh, during the uh, tribulation and so on. And the, it's interesting, the angel says here that uh, those who are called to this mercy supper are blessed. It's a wonderful thing to be called to this event, to witness it. We'd like to do a lot of preaching about the mercy supper of the Lamb, but this is really all we have. So we're not going to speculate. What, we don't even know where. It may be in heaven, some think that. It may be on the earth after we return with him. But uh, I like the uh, preparation of the bride here. We read that. And maybe as we read that, I don't know, maybe when you read this section, you get troubled because it says, uh, first of all, that um, the uh, bride has made herself ready. And then it says that the fine linen that she's wearing is a righteous acts of the saints. And you get troubled and you say, wait a minute, I thought the righteousness that I have on, which is pictured by white linen, is given to me by God. We don't earn our salvation, so how can this be? And I see little question marks above your brains out there right now. Well, it's a lovely picture, and yes, it is the righteous acts of the saints here. He's not replacing the righteousness that we have in Christ. Think about it this way. I love going to weddings. I love even more conducting weddings. Because I, besides the groom, have the greatest view in the building to see the bride when she comes in. I love that moment. Don't you? Yes? There's something about seeing the bride when she comes in from the back, all decked out in her beautiful white gown. It just takes your breath away. Doesn't it? Now think about the context here where he says the bride has prepared herself. You see, the, the, the picture is that just as in our weddings today, there is a parallel here. 
Here the bride has made herself ready for her groom. She may look beautiful to everybody there in the room, but she's done it for one person. For him, you see. It's beautiful. And so out of all the people in that room, there's one lucky guy. <laughs> you know, the one for whom she has made herself ready. And I love that nice slow procession as she comes up uh, the aisle. Maybe some guy's looking on with envy, but there's only one guy that she's done it for. And that's the picture here, you see. We should think about ourselves that way, getting ourselves ready for Jesus. You know, we don't get our ticket punched to heaven and then kicked back to our old way of life. It's precious to the Lord when we live by faith to please Him. Do you understand? That's, that's what it's talking about. She has made herself ready as the righteous acts. And it doesn't go unnoticed. And not just dying for Jesus, not martyrdom, you know. A time when you feel too tired to pray, but you pray anyway. The time when the temptation is so strong, but she's saying no to that temptation to please the Lord. He loves that. That's precious. You see, that's decking yourself out. That's the, that's the uh, bride getting herself ready. The time when uh, you're too afraid to witness, but you speak up for the Lord anyway because you love Him so much. You understand? The righteous acts, these are precious to the Lord. Now, uh, lest we think, well, we're doing all this in the flesh, it's interesting that he includes the phrase here, verse 8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. You see, the Lord is behind it all anyway. But when we obey Him, when we step out in faith and trust Him, He makes a note of it. And it's like each time, you know, we're adding to that beautiful white gown when we please Him that way. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's great. It means something to Him. She has made herself ready. So think about it that way. Now as an individual member of the, of the church, are you making yourself ready? Are you decking yourself out so that when He comes to take us to Himself, you know, we have something to show. We're going to have His righteousness on. Wouldn't it be nice to have righteous acts to decorate it? Yes? Okay. Um, and, and the speaker here, by the way, was an angel. I pointed that out. Some wonder who it is because it says in verse 5, then a voice came from the throne and it never says who it is. But we get a clue in verse 10. Uh, he says, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. It's an angel. Uh, look in Hebrews 1 where God describes angels as servants. Isn't that amazing? There are servants. It says they're servants to those who are, uh, are partakers of the gospel, us believers. Not all of them, but uh, many of them are. And, oh yeah, this last phrase here. The cults run wild with this one. Um, Seventh-day Adventist is one of them. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, that sounds so, so cryptic to people, particularly unsafe people. They do all kind of crazy things with it. What's he mean by that? He's simply saying that when it comes to prophecy, telling of things in the future in the Bible, the very heart of them is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? This book, what, what's, you, the message of this book is about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the heart of it. And so that's what it says. The, spirit, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Okay, then uh, the big event. This is it. 
This is the moment that not just the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible really has been pointing to. The great event. Being in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. This is the moment that uh, creation is is being groaning for. Now, it said that the ruling, uh, revealing of the sons in glory, what it meant was is waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's when we come with Him. The important thing there is not the revelation of us, but the revelation of Jesus. And it'll be so right. He has been abused, ignored, avoided, but it will happen no longer. I like God using the parts of the anatomy uh, to show how all-inclusive the knowledge of His coming will be. It says in Philippians that uh, every knee shall bow. This part. And then this. It says every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's going to be a big amen when that happens. Let me tell you. Let me hear it now. Right. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, there was another part of the anatomy. It was the eye. It says every eye shall see Him. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know, it would have been nice to see Jesus. Well, you're going to. If you don't know Him and you don't know Him when He comes, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. You see, when He sets up His kingdom here, it's not that He's going to subject people to His rule who haven't known it before. The people who are going to be uh, under His rule are those who are already under His rule to begin with. So, let me urge you, Accept his lordship now so that you'll be ready when he comes to rule. Okay, well, before we look at the text, I thought it'd be good. I would love to just go over all the scripture that are still waiting, unfulfilled. They're still in the books, so to speak. They have not been fulfilled, promising this moment. But I thought it would be good if we just looked at a few of them. Turn back to Genesis should be familiar ground. You were just here this morning. Chapter 49 is Jacob's blessing of his sons. You haven't gotten to this section yet. I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder. I'm only going to look at one verse, so relax, whoever's teaching next week. John Rosendahl's eyebrows are going crazy, so it must be him. Just one verse, 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, 
Here's uh, your pop quiz for the morning, the morning here. Doesn't take a rocket scientist. Who is Shiloh? Who? That's right. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So there it is. That has not happened yet. The obedience of the people has not fallen to, to Shiloh yet. We are in active rebellion. When I say we, I'm talking about mankind. Praise God, I'm not in the rebellious part anymore. Praise His name. But in general, this world is in rebellion against Jesus. But there will come a time when to Him shall be the obedience of the people. So that promise is yet to be fulfilled. But it will be very, very soon. Okay, like, like I said, we're not going to look at all of them. Just a few. Second Samuel chapter 7. Let's jump ahead to the historical books here. Second Samuel, right? We're going to keep going right to make it easy on you here. No left turns. Second Samuel chapter 7. Yeah, the Lord is, is talking to David here and he says in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. Read the uh, genealogy in, in uh, Matthew. Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Has that happened yet? It will. Very, very soon. Forever. Without end. Praise God. At last, things will be set right. Okay, Psalm 89. Actually, before we get there, I, I promise no left turns. Psalm 2 first. We've talked about this, but uh, a lot of it describes what we're looking at right here in chapter 19 of Revelation. The, the picture of the world actually trying to resist His rule. Can you imagine trying to oppose Jesus Christ when He comes to take His, his throne? Nothing could be more foolish or futile. That's why God laughs. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. We saw that in chapter 16. Remember? The stage was set. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath. And we see that in chapter 19. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have, past tense, set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It's as good as done. He speaks about it in the past tense. But there will be a time when it is literally fulfilled. Okay. Now Psalm 89. And as I said, this is not exhaustive here. We're skipping many, many prophecies. Psalm 89, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Isn't this good? It's not just one place. It's everywhere. <laughs> There's no doubt. Of all the prophecies in the Bible, I'll tell you, this one thing that's clear. Jesus Christ is going to reign over the earth. Period. God would be such a big liar, you'd have to throw out every book in the Bible. 
Uh, Isaiah. I love this. Isaiah 9. Like many of the passages, it's talking about both of his comings. But it's clear when we transition to the second coming. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. What's that talking about? Bethlehem. Yeah. Unto us a son is given. Okay. That's the first coming. Here's the rest. And the government will be upon his shoulder. That has not happened yet. Who's the ruler of the world right now? It's, it's Satan. That's right. He's ruling this place. But the government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. Praise God. Peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. You getting the idea that it's not going to end? Forever. Okay, just one other section. We could read about every chapter in Isaiah probably. Chapter 40. Verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. There's a good statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord, your, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. Hasn't happened yet. Okay, last prophet. And we're skipping a lot here by skipping the prophets. Zechariah, right toward the end, just before Malachi. Of course, there's that wonderful passage in Zechariah that says, uh, they, they should look on me who they have, whom they have pierced. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? Jehovah is speaking, and he says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. And then it says, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. How can you read that and not realize that Jesus is God? That Jehovah is the Messiah? But this is uh, another section, chapter 14, uh, verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. We're going to see that in just a second. As he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and something's going to happen which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. What a difference, huh? The last time the Lord Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, He was in agony. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it the south. So if you wonder where is he going to come, where is he going to land, so to speak, well, it's going to be the Mount of Olives. What an appropriate place for him to come to. Okay, just three more. We'll uh, skim through the New Testament. Matthew, 
24, the Lord Jesus Himself here speaking. Matthew 24, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is not talking about sorrow for Jesus. They're sorry for themselves. They will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen very, very soon. Acts chapter 1. I love this verse um, because the angel is talking to the apostles and uh, you get the picture, they're all standing going like this. You, you, you ever tried that? You know, you go out in a crowded street and start doing this, you know what will happen? Yeah, everybody else starts going like that. And whenever I read this verse, that's the picture I get, you know. The disciples are kind of going like this, you know. Well, and I'm not uh, blaming them. It's, it's good, because the Lord Jesus has just ascended, you see. And he's vanished from their sight, but they're still looking up there. And it's wonderful, because the angel is basically saying, okay, that's good, but now there's things to do down here, you know. Let's start focusing here. Don't worry, he's going to come again. Just the way you saw him leave, he's going to come back that same way. But until then, you know, work down here. But work as if you're looking up that way. And so that's what he says in verse 11. Um, well, verse uh, 9, Now when he had spoken these things, this is the Lord Jesus, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are angels. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, that has not happened yet. That's a promise. And he's going to do that very soon. Finally, now back to Revelation. And we're skipping a lot here by jumping through the New Testament like this. Chapter 1. We read this when we started. And remember the title of the book. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is it called that? Because it's the first words of the book. Why is it the first words of the book? Because it's the big thing in the book. <laughs> it's the big event. It, doesn't, it, it, it implies, certainly, that there are things being revealed to John from Jesus Christ, but that's not the main sense of the phrase. The main sense of the phrase is, at last, he is going to be revealed. And here it's, it's uh, emphasized in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Okay? Are you encouraged? Boy, I am just reading that stuff. It makes me, Lord, come now. You know? And so, the next best thing, I guess, is to read about it. Jesus talking about when it's going to happen. <laughs> you know? It's, isn't it neat to read a story before it happens? Where else can you do that? Nowhere. 
So here he is in Revelation 19. He's described, uh, first of all, with two words. He's called faithful and true. That'll, that's so nice. No lies. No deception. No ulterior motives. Pure. Faithful and true. Someone who loves righteousness. Wouldn't it be nice? Someone who loves righteousness, ruling, not just the U.S., the whole planet. We're not going to have a government here and a government there. There's going to be one world government. And one ruler. He's not going to need a cabinet to advise him. <laughs> okay? He's not going to run for re-election. He's not going to have to make campaign promises that he won't keep. He doesn't need to do that kind of stuff. You see, he loves righteousness because of who he is. He doesn't have to be coerced to do that, to do the right thing. He loves it. And the great thing is, not only is, would it be terrible if he loves righteousness and wants to do the right thing and can't do it? But that's not the case. You see, not only does he love righteousness and hate iniquity, but he has the power to enforce it so that it will be acted out on the earth. In verse 15, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And what an appropriate title in this setting then, as he comes finally to turn the world right side up again and to take his rightful place, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the title. He alone is fit to rule. Do you understand? No one, really, no person is really fit to rule. Ultimately, they're corrupted by power, greed, who knows what. We've seen it happen over and over again from kings to presidents. And he is not only the king of people, he's the king of kings. In other words, he's fit to rule over even kings and every lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is he lord of your life right now? Is he king of your life? Because if he's not, your life is upside down. And to get it turned right side up, he needs to be your Lord. He alone is fit to rule. You're not fit to rule your own life. Do you know that? God says it in his word. Jeremiah says it's not in a man to direct his own steps. You may think you are, but watch yourself. Give it enough time. You'll get into enough big messes. Maybe you'll begin to see that you're not. Okay. And then finally, the last scene of the chapter here. And uh, I have to confess already that I'm not a man who keeps his word. I told you I'd try to finish the book by the end of February. I think you see we're not going to be able to. Lord willing, next week we'll look at uh, chapter 20, which will then have the millennial reign and other things in it. <clears throat> but uh, 17 through 21, there's real irony here. I want you to notice this. Because there are two suppers in this chapter. The first one was the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the second one. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There it is. You see that? I said the, 
the, the rulers of the earth and, and all the people that follow them are going to gather together. And it says right here, they gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. They know what they're doing. Isn't that incredible? People are going to get together and, you know, you can imagine all the arsenals of the earth coming together, the superpowers, everybody, to try to keep Jesus Christ from ruling. It's incredible. Now, if you remember, they were helped along by a judgment of God. Turn back to chapter 16. There are three judgments of deception, by the way. If I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. If you insist on rejecting Christ and going in your way and hardening your heart, there may come a time when God will judge you and harden your heart. We see that in Scripture. And He does that with people on the earth. It began, you remember we read back in the Second Thessalonians, that when the church is caught up, and at that point in time there are no believers on the earth, it says that God will send upon them a great delusion. That's a judgment. It's an act of judgment. So that those who had heard the gospel and, and didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ, it says that they will then believe the lie rather than the truth because of this delusion. They're going to be deceived. I don't know what that lie will be. Maybe part of it will be an explanation of where did all these people go? I don't know. But whatever it is, there's, a, there's deception there. And it's an act of judgment by God. The second time that this deceiving is mentioned is at the coming into power of the Antichrist. Remember, we saw that back in chapter 12. It says he will deceive the world with signs and wonders. Because you sit there and you wonder, how in the world are people going to worship a man? I'll tell you, they're going to worship him with their whole heart, a lot of them, because of the things that he's going to be able to do. They're going to be deceived. We don't want God, get, you know, give us signs and a guy that can do them and we'll do that. We'll worship him. And so God's going to give it to them. And then finally, here in chapter 16, they've already been blaspheming God and cursing His name because of what He's been doing. In uh, the, the sixth bowl, verse uh, 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan, right. Out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the one that promotes the worship of Antichrist. Well, what are these frogs? It says... 14, for there are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. You see, so because of the deception that the Antichrist and his prophet are going to perform these signs, they're going to convince people on the earth, hey, if we get together and pool our resources and act united, we can resist the Lord. And they're going to believe it. And then they gather together, it says in verse 16, in a place called Armageddon. And really, I said the last time I preached on that, that we could pick up that narrative and start reading right here in verse 19, because that's really picking up where that left off. There they are, gathered together. Why? To make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Well, there's never any doubt of the outcome. It's a, it's a futile resistance. First of all, uh, two are taken alive. The beast and the prophet. The Antichrist and his religious leader. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. 
there's the first mention of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. We're going to see a lot of it now in the next couple of chapters. It's hell. It's where finally the rest of things, the affairs in the universe are going to be made right. Because sin has gone essentially unpunished. Here's the first uh, candidates, first inhabitants, if you will, of hell. Inappropriate ones they are. The Antichrist and his uh, religious leader. Now, in case you subscribe to that crazy doctrine that uh, hell means annihilation, jump ahead here and uh, look in chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. He's the third occupant of hell. Where the beast and the false prophet are. Now, you know how much time there is between uh, the verse we read in chapter 19 and this verse in 20? A thousand years. They've been there a thousand years. A thousand years. And it's just beginning for them. There's no end. Think about it. And the rest, verse 21, we'll finish up the chapter, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's interesting how God, when he uh, calls the birds, it's like he, he says, look, we've got the choicest meats for you. Do you notice that? He said, the flesh of kings, of captains, the flesh of mighty men. No ordinary people here. Now, you may be sitting there saying, this is terrible. You know, how can God do this? Listen, God has been patient for we don't know how many thousand years with his world being upside down and him being excluded hated. These people hate him. They have been cursing him. They have gathered together to kill him, basically, to fight against Jesus Christ. And he's going to show them no mercy. And rightly so. And if you think, uh, well, that's terrible, you know how they're going to get killed and everything. Listen, physical death is no big deal. Whether you die violently or in your sleep. It's what happens afterwards that's important. That's what you need to be thinking about. And whether you die violently or in your sleep, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the death, <laughs> you're going to forget that like that. Because it's going to be eternity, finally, away from God forever in hell. And it's right that it'll be that way. And so it will be with these ones. These ones particularly, though, will be personally slain by Jesus Christ. What a uh, claim to fame, huh? To be among those whom Jesus Christ personally slew. But there will be those ones. The one, remember, who previously had come another time and died for them. So the way is clear now at the end of this chapter. We'll pick it up next week. Praise God, finally. It's like he's leveled everything. And uh, the earth will have a fresh start with him on the throne there will be rest at last on planet Earth. Praise God. At last, the creator of the Earth will be ruling it. It's the way it should be. Creation will no longer be groaning, as we saw in Romans 8. And things will no longer be abnormal. It'll be normal. It'll be right. Of all the verses I could close with, I, I think I'll finish with Jeremiah 31, 34. Uh, because 
is we're going to look, when we get, uh, Lord willing, I think we're going to pick it up in June to finish off the book. We may do it in one message, I don't know. But uh, as many of you know, in that last chapter particularly, there are a lot of phrases, no more, right? You know, no more crying, no more death. I love those phrases. There are a lot of no mores there. All the bad stuff, no more. Well, there's a no more in Jeremiah, and it's very interesting. You know what it says? There's no more witnessing. You don't need it. Wouldn't that be great? You won't have to leave tracks in bathrooms anymore. It's going to be no more. It says, No more shall every man uh, teach his neighbor, nor tell his brother, Know the Lord. It's not going to happen anymore. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think of these things, and as we see them promised in your word, we groan within ourselves, and how we long for that day. Oh Lord, make it soon. Until then, Lord, may we be found, not craning our necks up, but at least looking up in our spirits as we serve you here, longing for the day when you shall come and take your rightful place. Take it right now, Lord Jesus, in every heart here. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you.